Our guest today says panic disorder is the disorder no one can miss and no one wants to live with. Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, your host, and with me today is Dr. Margaret Werenberg. An expert on the treatment of anxiety and depression, Dr. Werenberg also has extensive training and expertise in the neurobiology of psychological disorders. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Werenberg. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to talk with you today. Let's focus on panic disorder today. How common is it? Panic disorder is surprisingly common in any given year, about 6 million people in the United States. That's about 2.7% of the population will complain of it. But interestingly, I think about 30% of people in the U.S. at some time in the course of their life will have a panic attack. And having a panic attack, of course, doesn't mean that you develop panic disorder. But the experience of panic is pretty common. And Six million people is a pretty broad range of people to be experiencing panic disorder. And once you've had one of those panic attacks, you will never forget it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the truth. Spoken from experience here. (laughs) Now, what are the origins of panic disorder? Well, interestingly, there's two sort of categories. One is the more spontaneous panic, the one that people say comes out of the blue. And it's thought that that might be related to uh, very sensitized activity in a part of the brain, the basal ganglia, where for no apparent reason, there's a sort of spontaneous firing or kindling of the cells in the brain, and it triggers the fight-or-flight response of the nervous system. Uh, However, I think the majority of panic attacks are triggered by a previous experience where your amygdala has remembered and registers that a situation was frightening. And even though people don't always recognize that they are responding to a cue from the past and that they're having panic that's being triggered by something, the panic attack is actually triggered by a previous experience, even though the person may not recognize it. And research on the brain, as it becomes more and more sophisticated about looking at the activity of the amygdala, the idea that panic attacks are probably cued far more often than they come out of the blue, is really gaining research acceptance, I think. Dr. Weinberg, there are so many symptoms of panic disorder. Can you help us organize them? I think that primarily you look at physical symptoms of panic disorder and then the cognitive symptoms. And remember, panic disorder is really a fear of being afraid. The feeling of fear, as you said, you had had an experience where you recognized panic yourself. Actually, so many people do. They don't necessarily become, however, afraid of feeling that feeling again. People with panic disorder develop a set of cognitive symptoms where they are afraid of having the feeling. And the physical sensations are what are called fight or flight, a very rapid heart rate, an increase in blood pressure, People may not feel that, but they will certainly feel the increase of respiration where they literally are gasping or panting for breath. And along with that are some very troubling symptoms for people, nausea, dizziness, sense of shakiness, which is from adrenaline in the system. So the symptoms are physically dramatic and often send people running to the emergency room thinking that they may be having a heart attack. And that is 
sort of characterizes the other group of symptoms, which are, I would call, cognitive symptoms. People develop the wrong belief that they're dying or the belief that they're going to lose control or the belief that they're going crazy. It tends to be in one of those three categories. So it tends to be the overall fear that I'm going to be afraid, the huge and dramatic physical symptoms, and then the cognitions, which don't really make sense, but they feel true. I'm dying, I'm going crazy, or I'm going to lose control. Now, one of the problems that I see in my office is I will get a referral for a patient that has panic disorder, and it seems like those of us in mental health are often the last stop, that they've already been through the cardiology workup and the GI workup and maybe the neuro workup, you know, several hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes until somebody sends them to us. Is there any way um, non-mental health providers can cut this off at the pass and get them to us sooner without maybe the million-dollar workup? Well, I think that it would make so much sense if somebody showed up in the emergency room, which is where people tend to go first, and then they go to their primary care physician. They're often given a prescription for an anti-anxiety medication. And I think that if the medical professionals, before doing the extensive workup, which is very demanding financially as well as in terms of medical time, it doesn't take a lot to discover whether or not a person can calm their panic down by learning techniques that control it, such as diaphragmatic breathing, muscle relaxation, or controlling their thoughts. And if those worked promptly, you could probably avoid doing more medical tests. And then if they didn't work, you could do more tests. I think a medical doctor can often be pretty certain after an examination as to whether or not there's an overt cardiological problem going on where they could feel confident in waiting a few weeks and seeing if the person responds to a therapy intervention. So I'd say if they were going to treat with an anti-anxiety medication, that would require a few therapy sessions. Some of the research says that as few as five therapy sessions, far less expensive than a 24-hour cardiac monitor that you wear, can help somebody diminish or get rid of panic attacks. If you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Margaret Werenberg. We are discussing her book, The Anxious Brain, The Neurobiological Basis of Anxiety Disorders and How to Effectively Treat Them. Back to triggers now for a moment. How were triggers created? In the amygdala of, actually it's true for everybody, not just those with anxiety, the amygdala is the part of the brain that's very concerned with noticing what's new, what's novel in the environment, and registering how important it is. And for our survival in the world, the amygdala is very specialized to notice danger. And when something goes seriously wrong, something that's very risky for us, For example, stepping in the street and car horns blaring and you can potentially get hit, the amygdala registers screeching brakes and car horns are signs of danger and it learns it immediately. If something is very scary, the amygdala learns it and after that event, whenever you hear something that reminds you of the screech of the brakes and the car horn, 
you're going to feel a feeling of fear. So let's say there is some sort of injury, and actually a car accident is a great example. If a person's in a car accident, even if they haven't experienced a major physical injury, they might have been scared to death, if you will. And thereafter, anything that reminds them of the car wreck, no matter how remote, the amygdala is going to essentially scream, "Uh uh-oh, at you. But it is really, the amygdala doesn't really think. It just registers danger. And if it's something very frightening, it sends a huge signal of danger. And immediately, the amygdala alerts your autonomic nervous system to start that fight or flight. It tells the hypothalamus, we've got a stressor here. So the hypothalamus, you know, sends out its signals to start the stress response and adrenaline flows. So you have the high adrenaline, heart racing, rapid respiration, panic attack, even though the cue that the amygdala was responding to might be far removed from the original fear. Like maybe you were driving in the rain on a dark night when you had the car accident. And now there are things that remind you of, maybe you hear a song about a dark rainy night and your amygdala immediately is flashing. You know, that's pretty far removed from the original incident, but it can get pretty far removed in exactly that way. So people aren't even so aware that they are responding to something that originally was caused by a trauma. How do we best treat panic disorder? Panic disorder absolutely requires controlling the physical symptomatology. And that's actually easier done than you might believe by initiating things that slow down the stress response and slow down the autonomic responses of rapid heart rate and breathing. And that can be done through diaphragmatic breathing, which immediately flows respiration, obviously, and that then starts the parasympathetic slowing of the rest of all that rapid and intense arousal. And imagery can slow down the response of the body. Relaxing the muscles can help with that. You teach clients to change breath and change imagery in their minds. And our minds are very powerful in influencing our physical symptoms. So by changing what we're thinking and by changing our breath, we actually trigger physical changes that slow the body down and stop the panic attack. I assume that there are medications involved. I know that's not your particular area of expertise, but how would a primary care doc or a non-mental health specialist know when they need us, a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Well, I think that it's, really regrettable to me that I now receive most patients already on medication. There's a lot of research that will demonstrate for people who are not suffering severe mental disorder that they can do well without medication. So I think anytime an MD is treating a patient with an antidepressant category, an SSRI drug, or an anti-anxiety medication, they ought to insist on psychotherapy. And and here's the reason. The medication may, in fact, calm down a person whose anxiety is out of control. An SSRI may really help the very negative or ruminative, worrying person. But medications don't 
teach mental control and don't teach physical control either. They just calm the brain down. So when you add therapy in, you allow a person eventually to get off of medication and live without it while controlling their symptoms through their own decision and the way they practice thinking and the way that they handle their bodies. Well, thank you so much for sharing your ideas on the show with us today. Thank you. We've been discussing panic disorder and the anxious brain with our guest today, Dr. Margaret Werenberg. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent. You've been listening to our special segment on psychiatry on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.